Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with expert knowledge from professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. Each week, we talk to experts in the field to bring you insights into household management. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Today, I'm joined by Emeritus Professor Michael Bittman, a former professorial fellow in sociology at University of New England, to talk about the gender division of housework. Let's begin. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining the show. Hi there, Gabriella. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm okay. Great. Um, do you want to get started by sort of introducing yourself a little bit? Okay, so um, I'm a retired professor and I spent about the last 30 years of my research life researching how people use their time. Um, I've advised a lot of official national statistical agencies and the UN on how to gather that information. And I was president of the International Association for Time Use Research. That sounds really interesting. I can't wait to get into this topic a little bit more. Um, but first, um, we'll just get to know you a little bit more. Um, what's your favourite book? My favourite book is probably a book by an Australian author called Anna Funder, and it's called All That I Am. And I like it because basically it's very close to my parents' story. Um, it's based on an interview with a Holocaust survivor. Well, no, not a Holocaust, a, a refugee from Nazism in the middle of the 20th century. Wow, I haven't heard of that book, but I think that sounds really interesting. And I love reading anything yeah. Um, yeah. set in Australia. Yeah, well, she, he interviewed this woman in Bondi, and I don't know how heavily she's disguised stuff. There's a figure in the book who actually was a real person and she gives him his real name <laughs> and I have a, a book of his in the German language uh, which is translated into English is I am a German anyway. He was quite a famous playwright and pacifist after World War II. So he's one of the characters in the book and um, they have an interesting story of flight from the Nazis and then hiding from them while they were in London and then getting themselves to Australia. Yeah, sounds good. Um, have mm. you seen any movies or TV shows recently? Yeah, I have. I went, the last recent movie I saw was called Juniper. It was a New Zealand movie about um, a woman who was, had a kind of terminal diagnosis and um, she is in the reluctant care of her grandson and it's quite an interesting kind of relationship struck up between the two of them. But I think 
you know, if you would talk about the most influential movies, I'd be talking about all the movies, things like Slumdog Millionaire and there's a really ancient 1958 movie called Black Orpheus in English, actually Brazilian, mm. which I adore. Sounds interesting. Um, do you listen to any podcasts? And I've listened to one. My uh, stepdaughter sent me one by a, a Dutch academic on uh, a guaranteed minimum income scheme, <laughs> which is a, an idea that's been around since I think the 60s. In the society seems to get these successive waves of being worried that machines will take over all the work that humans do and how are we going to guarantee that people have an income if they're not paid for work? So a very famous but very conservative economist uh, thought up this idea, which is basically like a negative income tax where government pays you not to go to work. I like that anyway, idea. Anyway, it's, it's modern incarnation is basically just a sort of um, – stronger safety net so that whatever your employment status or whatever, you you have a guaranteed income. It's, and um, it's the kind of thing that Bernie Sanders advocates for. Definitely something, um, something worth discussing, um, but unfortunately not in this podcast, I think. Um, <laughs> no, another, another bit, bit far out of the scope. Um, do you have a role model? Um, yeah, I probably do. Um, there'd be people who've written books mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I, I know probably some sociologists, you know, um, some of them quite ancient. <laughs> Used to be called the founding fathers before that became a bit of a swear word. They were sort of dead white males, you know, problem. Yeah. So, um, and in terms of writing, um, you know, I I would like to be able to write better, be a better communicator. So, one of the things that interests me about that Anna Funder book is how she writes. Great. Yeah, I think we. I definitely want to learn how to write better. I think everyone wants to write a book, right? <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to write one at the moment, but it's slightly more fictional. It's it's actually sort of work of faction. (laughs) So it's about, it's almost a memoir, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's really mostly about my parents. Interesting. Can't wait to see that. Um, Yeah, I've got chapter one in the bank, but Mm -hmm. I, I keep getting distracted by other projects. Of course. Um, is there a course you've re- uh, you've completed recently or that you've really enjoyed? Um, well, at the moment, I go to painting classes. Um, and behind me, you can see one of my early paintings. Ah, beautiful. I was looking at that. Yeah, yeah. So um, that interests me because um, my parents were from Austria, which lost its any coastline it had when the empire ended after World War One, And so they came from a landlocked country, but they thought one of the attractive features of Sydney was the water, the ocean beaches and the harbour. Mm-hmm. And um, 
they didn't really know what you did on an ocean beach. They love the beach, but they find a grassy place and spread out a picnic blanket and take an awful lot of furniture and prepared food and have a big picnic there. And when they went into the water, they found a calm spot and they swam breaststroke on top of the water. But I saw these Australians who were sort of playing with the waves and I decided I'd quite like to do that once I'd learned to swim. And um, I just sort of followed my intuition, which was to swim over the break. That seemed like the logical thing to do. But in fact, what that does in a Sydney surf is end up um, giving you what is called by Sydney side as a dumping, right? So you get thrust to the bottom of the ocean and, and half buried in the swirl of sand and salt and you think you're going to drown. And that's not the way to get beyond the break. So I, I call this painting behind me the first lesson my parents couldn't teach me because another immigrant descendant boy showed me that the way to do it was run towards the wave and dive under it, which sounded like a crazy idea when I first heard it, but it's the only thing that works. So I did a painting of that. That's great. That's a great memory. Yeah. So much our parents teach us and so much they don't. No, they just didn't know about that because mm. they never swam in the ocean yeah. <laughs> before. They knew about lakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very different swimming in a lake. Yeah. Mm. So we'll move on to the topic. Um, so yep. we'll start off with how, how do you define household management? Right. Well, I think there's two meanings. So amongst the specialists, it's got a very narrow meaning. It, it's about the things, the sort of paperwork you do to manage your household. So paying bills, making up shopping lists, employing any any helpers that do part of the household production. Um, but I think in, in common sense, people would think, well, um, how do you manage all the functions that the household performs? And um, what's happened, particularly since second wave feminism, is that people have started to realise that there's something called household production, that an important number of goods and services are produced within the household without any exchange of cash or without anyone being paid a wage. And that's sometimes called by economists the non-market economy. And I had an economist friend, Duncan Ironmonger, and he and some other figures worked out the best way to put a dollar value on the value of the goods and services produced in this household economy and he finds that it's actually larger than the market economy and if you break the market economy down into particular branches of industry and you measure the amount of time that's devoted to that industry and you compare it to the amount of time that's households devote to their products and services, then you find the biggest industry in Australia is childcare, even though a tiny proportion of the Australian population is actually doing it at any one moment. Um, But I think it's about uh, 20 times larger than mining. (laughs) 
in wow. terms of the time allocated. Um, and I think there's a, a, a growing understanding that actually conventional economic measures which pay no attention to these non-market exchanges actually miss something important. Um, and uh, I think we're going to discover this more and more because uh, the demographers point out that um, economic advancement comes with a falling rate of fertility, so lower birth rate. Mm-hmm. And um, the other miracle we've wrought over the last 100 years or so is much longer life. So if you look at life expectancy until very recently, uh-huh. it's just a, a continuous compounding upward curve. And so the result of that is is that what used to be called the age pyramid now looks not like a pyramid. Mm-hmm. And if you calculate a ratio, which the demographers call dependency ratio, which is the number of people who are below or above working age compared to the people in the working age bracket, that's generally something like... 18 to 60 or 18 to 65, we're getting to the point where the dependents completely outnumber the working age population. And the only solution to that set of demographic trends seems to be more thoroughly mobilised female labour. Mm-hmm. This has happened to some extent in some Scandinavian countries like Finland, where they, after World War Two, they, they, they basically mobilised the whole of their female population. Yeah, so um, they're going to have to find ways where they can release um, the labour that goes into managing households and producing those services at home with something that allows... Uh, parents in particular to um, join the paid labour force without long breaks and for the hours that are required. Hmm, interesting. So the products and services you mentioned, so those yeah. are things like um, looking after children, I guess cooking meals, that type of thing? Hmm. Mm. Indeed. And so you're, you're saying that what we need to do is um, – take the people who are performing those actions and put them into the labour force to care for um, dependents? Yes, that's right. So um, people are starting to talk about something they call a care economy and the COVID crisis really foregrounded this, right? So a lot of what the household does is actually keep people in a condition to present healthily to for work, uh, so they, they're reproducing their own capacities. And when you come to the care of children, you're talking about developing these capacities. And, you know, really humans are a bit of a miraculous species, you know. They're, they're born, in a sense, kind of prematurely. I mean, if you've ever been witness, say, the birth of a calf or something like that, they they come out and within moments they're trying to stand and they stumble around a bit. But within half an hour they're upright, right? 
Now, that just doesn't happen with humans. That takes much, much longer. And a lot of the things that humans have to learn are complicated and they're very social, right? So one huge miracle is is the acquisition of language, you know, that somehow what children learn, um, starting with just vocalisation, which is crying, uh, and, and, you know, somehow mothers work out what, what the irritation is that's causing the crying. But they, they go from that to a small uh, acquisition of vocabulary, often mispronounced, and, you know, adults think it's charming, you know, they can't say mama or dada properly, you know. But then they hit something called a vocabulary spurt where they go from about 50 words vocabulary to 10,000. Wow. And um, if you think about language, it's complicated because, first of all, you have to get the phonemes, that's the linguistic term for pronunciation correct, right? You have to be able to say uh, the word mother or father correctly and so it's not confused with other or, or things that sound a bit similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's what's called morphemes, right? So morphemes are little grammatical devices that define position and, and tense, you know, continuous activity and so forth. So once you've mastered the language, you've got to realise what, how you have to alter it to make it plural or to make it a continuous description, you know, run, running, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and children master all this before they get to school. If they didn't have this by the time they got to school, <laughs> schooling wouldn't work. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's a really phenomenal period of growth and um, we're only just beginning to realise that either. Nobel Prize-winning economist called James Heckman pioneered this, but actually the investment in the first five years of children is just the most important time, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And the rate of progress later is much slower. And what people often think when they observe children is that they don't have a very long attention span, but what it is is actually the learning is so rapid. <laughs> they acquire something, they move on to something really quickly, you mm-hmm. know, just just phenomenal speed. Anyway, so there's that kind of capacity building that people do in childcare and that's, mm-hmm. that's mostly the work of parents. And then... Yeah, we now have this kind of third age, which is where um, it's, you have to maintain capacity. So you need a bit of care at the other end of your uh, age uh, life cycle. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes they talk about the sandwich generation, which are parents who've got responsibility for children and they've got their own parents who are ageing, you know. So there's quite a lot of care that goes out. You think about all of that, you could call that the care economy. Uh, And it would include parts of the market economy and the public economy like the health system. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a lot of it goes on at home, of course. So um, we really need a strong solution to that and then that's going to become a growing problem as the years pass of these demographic trends I was talking about. 
uh, and you know we need we need to mobilise more female labour. Otherwise, we won't have anyone to produce the market goods and services that we need. Even though automation is increasing productivity all the time, and we've done a lot of offshoring, so countries with a different economic, less developed economic profile have been doing a lot of our manufacturing mm. for us. Um, but, you know, COVID showed how brittle those supply yeah. chains can become, you know. So, um, you know, we're going to need some some devotion of time to that. Mm. And, so I guess um, what is happening at home at the moment? Um, who is right. doing the labour? Okay. So, well... Um, household production is very gender segregated um, and it varies by life cycle stage, right? So um, teenagers don't do very much if they're living with their parents, um, but even that is sex segregated. Like, So, you know, girls get um, domestic tasks like, you know, if, bits of food preparation and meal cleanup and perhaps a bit of help with hanging out the laundry and, you know, a bit of cleanliness, maintenance. And boys get jobs like yard work, you know, raking up the leaves and maybe helping dad wash the car. Uh, then when people form households, there's a big leap in their um, domestic labour load and um, I used to find back when I started, which was working with data from 1987, that when people married, what happened was men who'd been living independently from their parents married and lost um, some hours of domestic labour. <laughs> and their wives acquired more hours of oh, domestic no. labour. Um, but I'm happy to say that over time that seems to be diminishing. Oh, good. Uh, and the next phase, I suppose, for a lot of people is is childbirth, and that is an absolute tsunami. Um, you just cannot believe how upside down that turns lives. So uh, if you looked at people's, um, you know, when you collect how people use their time, they, they, they have this peculiar characteristic where occasionally they multitask, so they do more than one activity simultaneously. Mm -hmm. so, but if you only count their main activities, then households devote 11 of the 24 hours in the day to caring for infants below two, right, which is just a shocking amount of time. And if you threw in the multitasking, that is the, the, when you're doing some other main activity but you're just keeping an eye out for the children, you know, um, that, would, that would be even, an even larger proportion of the 24 hours. And, of course, we all know that parents of young children often have disrupted sleep. Uh, I did a little bit of research on the mental health effects of that using a different kind of survey, and it... Men don't suffer from it much. It tends to be a problem that women suffer from. I don't think men respond to the nighttime wakings very regularly. Um, but I also found that the effect of being interrupted by your infant child while you're sleeping 
on your mental health is weaker than being financially deprived, which is measured by things like have you ever been unable to pay a bill or have you had to borrow money from someone, you know. That's much worse mental stress, as it turns out. And the other thing is if you're in a low-quality job, that's a job where the balance between the job demands and your resources are out of whack. And that's that's also very damaging to your mental health. So anyway, what happens at childbirth is that you get women going down what's sometimes called the mommy path, and strangely enough, um, men get a wage premium for being married and having children, <laughs> if you look at the averages, right? So their income goes up. So if you look at lifetime income, then you see them, the men go up and up and up and they peak at about 42 years of age. And women have this big fall off in their income and then they rejoin, but they never get right back up to the men's levels again, right? So that's why it's called the mummy track or the other name for it is the motherhood penalty. And that, that's going to be something we have to deal with because we now want to discourage the birth of children. That's the end of society, you know. And, and there's an equity issue, mm. which is, you know, why should uh, work of equal skill have different rates of pay? Mm. Uh, so we, we need to attack that motherhood penalty in some way. What um, would your recommendation be to tackle that? Well, if you can encourage men to be more interested in raising their children, and there's some promising preconditions for that. So what I found, even though our time use data doesn't go back very far, the earliest study was in 1974. I think in 1974 the the pattern for fathers was the following. They paced up and down the corridor of the hospital while their wife was in labour and maybe smoking a cigar or handing out cigars. Um, And then they weren't much interested in their their infant kids and they got a bit more interested when the boys were old enough to kick a football back or, you know, so about 10 years of age they'd be slightly more involved with their children. Uh, and then they started making fathers present at birth. And if you ever listen to fathers who are in the birthing suite, you you wonder, did they give birth or did their wife give birth, you know? <laughs> they give very graphic descriptions. Anyway, it seems to help the bonding, very early bonding attachment to their children so they... They're much more interested in their children in this age before 10 than they were some decades ago. Uh, And the other thing that I think has changed is the way we think about children, right? So if you go back to Victorian times, uh, you know, the aristocrats used to say, well, children should be seen but not heard, right? And they farmed them out to uh, governesses. And there was a, a widespread thing, if you go back, far enough in time, um, that poorer people used, and that, they were called wet nurses, right? So people who didn't like breastfeeding or they couldn't breastfeed, and they farmed that out to other women, right? So, and there, was a, there were these things called foundling homes 
where if you got an unwanted pregnancy, they'd have a secret little rotating turret thing. You could pop your baby in and then turn this turntable around so it disappeared into the foundling home. Um, you know, and so there was a lot of that kind of thing going on. So, and a very high infant mortality, right, in, the, in this historical period. Now, the modern parent doesn't think like that. So what happened was about the turn of the century, there's something called the first demographic transition where they really reduce infant mortality severely. So um, birth rate, it's not so much that birth rate changes, but the survival rate changes, right? So, you know, my mother was one of six children, you know, this is really common at the turn of the century. That was the average number of live births to a woman, right? Uh, and at that stage, they also discovered germ theory and um, a woman's responsibility was to keep the house hygienic, Right, so you know, started using soaps and disinfectants and all that kind of thing. Uh, also, nutritional science got going a bit, and mm-hmm. people started talking about a square meal, which is you know, protein, carbohydrate, uh, green veg, and another type of veg. Right, that's the four sides of the square. And so they they started trying to make sure that. Children were well fed, and their, their breadwinner husband was well fed. Uh, and then in the twenties and thirties, psychologists developed child development as a branch of psychology. And suddenly, the emphasis changes completely away from cleanliness and nutrition to the psychological development of the child. And we're still in that phase, and. Um, I think the thing that people currently want to have with their children is a relationship with their children, right, which is very different to the Victorian idea of seen but not heard. You know, they couldn't wait for them to grow up and become, I mean, they, you know, their children mining at the age of 10 in Wales in the 19th century, you know. So... Um, it's kind of like they want a friendship with their mm. children. So I think there's good conditions for encouraging more involvement with your children. Um, I think a lot of the barriers come from the employment side for men. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> Australia is second worst in the world in terms of um, parental leave. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So Terrible. They, they came up with a... Well, it was lucky we got anything at all because the US has nothing. Um, and I remember when it came in, which was very late and, you know, around the turn of the, the century you know, the 20, to the 21st century. And it was based on the idea of how long it took a woman to for her organs to recover from childbirth. So it was originally just 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in Scandinavia, it's... Um, 12 months with the right to come back part-time if you want to. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the other thing was it was uh, minimum wage and in Scandinavia it's 90% of your former income, right? 
The idea is you are a worker and you're coming back, you know, yep. in Scandinavia. And in Australia, that that's not even well established for women. But the take-up by men of parental leave, even, even when it is allowed, uh, is very poor. Uh, I think it's discouraged by male workmates and their supervisors. So, you know, I had one supervisor say to me, well... I understand if a young man wants to travel overseas, but if he wants to go home and care for his baby, I just don't get it, you know. Oh, that's so, terrible. Um, there's quite a, quite a lot of employment barriers, it seems to me, to involving men more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rates are still very low, the mm-hmm. take-up of that. And, um, you know, ch- childcare is falling typically t- to women and the... The breaks, I don't know how long the breaks are, but I, I think 12 weeks a massive underestimate. And I was working on a survey which went, had a cohort of women who'd given birth in the last year. Mm-hmm. And then it was a longitudinal survey and I followed them every two years. Well, I found that because the ideal family size is two children, women would have one child and take, some time off, but within the next two years they'd have a second child while they were having time off, right? Mm-hmm. And often the break would be something like about eight years before they returned to work. So, you know, it's one of the reasons, you know, just on human capital grounds you would expect it's difficult to return to your occupation because, you know, the skills you had would have rusted a bit over that period. You know, if you think about you know, and a, a profession like architecture, well, originally what what you had to do was learn how to draw to scale and, you know, how mm-hmm. to get perspective into your drawings and so forth. Well, no one draws a thing anymore. It's all done on a computer. You know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, uh, women coming back to work is often difficult because things have changed quite a lot. Yeah. And that might be another reason why their earnings never recover as well as they do. So there's that uh, childbirth phase. Now, the thing is that the, the domestic labour burden associated with child work falls quite steeply with the age of children. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, formal education is like a big child mining scheme, right? So that suddenly frees you up between... Eight and three for most people when it's term time, at least. Um, terrible arrangements for the holidays, of course. Um, and of course, they extended that with after school hour care, etc. You know, and we have a slightly better version of childcare than some countries, and we have a lot of well, a strong attempt to make sure the quality is quite good. That's pay is shocking, and they've got a labour force crisis. They, they mm. can't recruit enough childcare workers. But anyway, so there's that. And so that, that diminishes, and you see that women, when their children reach school age, are more likely to return to work, and they diminish their housework, right? So <clears throat> if you look at males over this period... Um, there, there's a bit of a bump when children are born, but generally 
you know, it doesn't affect their earning career. As I say, their earnings actually rise when they become parents. Um, and it's a relatively flat thing and uh, doesn't vary much by who's contributing what shares of income to the household because the majority of households in Australia are now dual earner households, um, not equal contributions, but mm-hmm. those two people contributing. And, uh, um, you know, the, the data on income shows this weird effect, which is uh, as the women's share of income increases until it gets to about 50%, they reduce their, the amount of domestic labour they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you start looking at this less populated tail where women are starting to earn a higher proportion of the income than their partners, their male partners, then it goes into reverse. And so you find where women are providing 100% of the income, they're doing the same amount of domestic work as they did when they are providing a 0% share. What? Why do they do that? What's causing that? Well, it's really odd. And the only explanation anyone's ever come up with is that there's a strong social norm <laughs> and that uh, if your earnings are greater than that of your male partner, then you're making yourself and him deviant, right? You're bringing disappropriation on both of you, right? So what women do to compensate for that is display this feminine characteristic of taking responsibility for um, domestic management. Um, I was going to ask, Yeah. so you're saying that women um, feel like they need to become more feminine by, and so they clean the house um, because they feel like they've disrupted the, I guess, the normal way of things. But mm. do the men feel like this? Do they, what do they do, I guess? No, the interesting thing is the men because is, com- is completely unresponsive to their share of the income they provide. <laughs> it's just, you know, if you, you think of it in graphical terms where you would have um, – the hours up the vertical axis, you know, mm-hmm. and um, the share of income on the horizontal axis, then you just get a straight line for the men. Like their share is more or less constant regardless. Uh, you know, their, their hours of housework are just, uh, you know, unchanging. Um, and how does the hours of housework that uh, w- women do compared to men, is that different? Mm. Sorry, when um, so um, with like a ratio of hours that yeah. men and women do of, of housework, um, is yeah. there a difference? You were saying that you know it tends to go yeah, up to fifty percent. Yeah. Um, so the share is somewhere between um, men do is you know four to one in favour or three to one in favour of women somewhere in that range. Uh huh. Um, and why is that? Uh, and what women complain about is the responsibility aspect of that, right? Mm -hmm. So when they engage in paid work, they lose, you know, up to eight hours a day, right? So they have to to shrink their their domestic labour. You just can't fit it all in, right? 
And typically what they do is they use their own income, A, to pay for childcare, and B, to seek ways of outsourcing the other most regular task, which is meal preparation, right? So I did a study of uh, what people, what's happening over time in terms of um, people um, outsourcing domestic tasks, you know, purchasing tasks, right? Mm -hmm. So so what you find is um, childcare... uh, is really significant, but really only for parents, right, which is a very young children, preschool-age children, right, mostly. And so that's not the, the bulk of the population that, you know, so childcare doesn't, if you, if you look at it as a proportion of the whole population, it's not a big spike, but amongst children it's really significant. Amongst parents of infant children it's really important. Uh, but all the other things, you know, gardening, paying a cleaner, um, they've all been steady for decades. Mm. They don't go up or down. The, the thing that has gone up and down is meal preparation, right? So what's happened was um, when I was growing up, you know, if you went to a restaurant, it had to be someone's golden anniversary or something. Not every year, you know. And um, and now it's it's a regular event for all classes of income uh, because, you know, the Bureau of Statistics treats McDonald's as a restaurant because they have tables and you can sit down, right? So you've got about the same frequency of purchasing a, a, a prepared meal for the low-income groups as for the high-income groups. The high-income groups eat in different places. They spend more money and a lot more on wine. Yep. Yeah. But but nevertheless, the frequency is a bit similar. Uh, there's a huge growth in takeaway uh-huh. food. Uh, and I imagine after the pandemic even more so. Mm-hmm. And then if you burrow into the supermarket basket, our expenditure survey is incredibly detailed. So I can work out purchases, you know, with ridiculous precision, you know. Is this ham champagne cured or is it honey cured? You know, um, that kind of level. Wow. And and what I did was I classed foods. I, I got a panel of consumers randomly selected, and I said, I want you to class these food types into three groups. One was raw, mm-hmm. like a unwashed potato or something, and the other extreme was um, high convenience, you know, like potato crisps where you tear the packet and you eat, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if you think about it, in the middle there's something which is intermediate. There's been something done to it, so it's less than raw. Right. Uh, and it turned out that um, the respondents thought toast was in the high convenience category, so obviously sliced bread, throw it in the toaster, and anything you could fit in the microwave was also high convenience, right? So there's been a steady growth in the proportion of the household budget spent on high convenience foods. But the other movement is a lot of movement from the raw into the intermediate, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get pre-made 
pastiforms like, you know, tortellini and so forth, which is stuffed, but they're stuffed ready for you. You know, you just stick them in the boiling water. The one that always amuses me is um, like pre-chopped salad or like frozen chopped vegetables. Yeah. Um, So all you have to do, I guess, is boil them rather than have to like prepare a fresh vegetable. Yeah, yeah. Would that be that type of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, you can stick them in the microwave, so they'd probably call them hot convenience. <laughs> um, but also, if you look around, you, you, they actually serve carrot mash stick, match sticks in little plastic tubs. Oh, wow. And, you know, they have what the French call crudité, you know, bits of celery and carrot and what else already chopped up for you and then people buy salad mix which you know the lettuce torn up you know mm-hmm. um so that's all in that intermediate class going more and more towards the high convenience um and the interesting thing was we looked in a longitudinal survey about uh where people do a, a rather crude thing where they say in rough hours per week how many hours they devoted to particular tasks and we we looked at women who were joining the workforce and then we followed the same couple through a few waves right because a lot of these surveys are done every year so we followed them in some countries for over seven waves and um all the adaption comes from women the men just don't change anything very much Uh, and uh, of course the the Domestic tasks are very sex-segregated, so, you know, the men do yard work, you know, quite a lot of the gardening, not that women don't do gardening. Uh, and generally they, they, they take responsibility for the car, um, but laundry savagely sex-segregated in the other way. And when I did a survey which asked males um, what washing appliance they had at home, there was a small proportion who didn't know the washing device that was in use in their household, right? So they ticked the box that said twin tub when the wife had ticked automatic washing machine, you know. <laughs> uh, and then when you asked them, uh, you know, what's involved in modern-day washing, um, they all thought you could just throw everything in the machine, whereas... Women were very keen on separating whites and colours and mm-hmm. thinking about what runs and, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, whether it's synthetic or cotton and, you know, was this a delicate and needs a different cycle, you know. So men were just plain ignorant about that. So um, do you think that men need to step up more and take on more responsibility? I think they could learn about that. I, you know, I don't see... Anyway, I mean, I live alone, so I've I've always had to, you know, learn about those things. But you know, I, I did learn very fast. I was living at home when I um, went on a scheme that took me to New Guinea to so-called assist the New Guinea Guineans in development. Actually, completely untrue. We didn't do anything really useful. But I hadn't ever washed my own clothes, so I threw in a red T-shirt into a boiling copper with my other white gear and everything came out pink. You know? <laughs> no. So I realised they had to be separated. But I'd watched my watched my mum do washing before it was mechanised, you know, where you had to shave the soap into the copper and you had to 
add blue to get these whites white and then you had to put them through a, a mangle and then, you know, you had to hang them out on a, a drop clothesline and it's no hills hoist or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that all got mechanised. They went to the point of set and forget and you would think laundry time would just fall away to nothing. But historically that's not what's happened. What's happened is our expectation about what the requirement for cleanliness is, is that we wash so much more often. So I go back to my grandfather. He had detachable collars and cuffs. He would have worn the body of the shirt all week. Um, The one day for laundry was Monday. Women hated Mondays. Men hated Mondays because they went back to work. You know, Sunday was the day off. Sunday wasn't. Uh, And... You know, with my own kids, they would get up in the morning and take their pyjamas off and they would go in the laundry basket and then they would change into their school uniform. When they got home from school, the school uniform would come off and go in the laundry basket and maybe there was a sports uniform as well. And then get in some leisure gear and at the end of the day, the leisure gear would go in the laundry basket, right? So every day we were washing, you know, huge amounts of this clothing all the time. So uh, laundry is very odd in that, in that you would think that, that we would have saved a lot of time, but we haven't. So um, the answer is don't wash your clothes so much. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. we could lower expectations, mm. but it's interesting that when you uh, – when you ask men why they don't share more of the housework, a lot of the time what they say is that they have different standards of cleanliness to their partners, mm-hmm. right? That they, they, you know, they express this in some positive way. They, they talk about how tolerant they are of dirt. You know, mm-hmm. but Do you find that to be true? But no, I don't <laughs> think it is. When you ask them the mother-in-law tests, like, how often should things be washed? They they give the same kinds of frequencies that women do. They're just not very knowledgeable about how you do it. And they criticise the women for vacuuming without moving the furniture around. You know, they think, yeah, if I'm going to vacuum, then I have to move the couch and vacuum under the couch. But I don't know how often they vacuum. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so there's, there's that kind of thing. Anyway, so the, I think there's a link between this um, diminishment of home meal preparation, the substitution of takeaway restaurant meals and the more high convenience meals with um, a different way of eating. Right? Mm-hmm. So what I've been doing lately is looking to see whether Australians still eat the same way they did, right? So I can go from 74 to the latest time year survey, which was 2006. There's a new one in the field now. It's just been healed up by COVID. Uh, And what happens, you find, is that um, breakfast was always a bit, there were always quite a lot of people who skipped breakfast. Mm -hmm. And it, it stretches out. Not, not only week weekday by weekend, but even on a weekday, you know, some people have a very early breakfast, some people have a very late breakfast, you know. So, um, And then there used to be, in 74, there was a steep spike between 
12 and 2 around lunchtime. And then you got to the evening and there was a distinct early evening spike for dinner. Mm-hmm. And what's happened over time is um, breakfast more or less the same. About one third of the people are stopping for lunch. And um, the evening meal's a bit more spread out mm-hmm. uh, time-wise. So, and what's happening also is that the, the context in which you eat is very different, right? So if you don't stop for lunch, you're eating your lunch at your work desk. You know, most people work white-collar these days. It's only a tiny proportion doing blue-collar work. And um, they don't even remember that they're eating, right? So the, the only eating occasions they can recall are when they eat together with other people, basically. So I think what was happening in 74 is you went to the cafeteria and you ate with your workmates, or if you were a housewife, you stopped and you you had a distinct lunch break. And um, you know, what I'm finding is a lot more eating of dinner alone and stuff like that, right? So there's a lot of alone consumption, and I think uh, that may... That, that seems to coincide with a steep rise in obesity uh, in the advanced economies, right? So most of the advanced economies, two-thirds of the adult population is overweight or obese, right? It's mm-hmm. absolutely a standard condition. So mm-hmm. Everyone worries about children getting obese, but actually it's the, male, it's the adult population that's really suffering. And it's a risk factor for almost all the deadly diseases, including COVID, you know. So um, I think it's important to realise now there are some countries like France where food is so important that the lunch break at school is one and a half hours. You're going to go home and eat properly. Mm -hmm. You can't eat on public transport. Everyone would tell you off for it. Uh, And they value food so highly, you know, by 11 o'clock they're they're dreaming about what they might be eating for lunch, you know. So I I think we need to copy the French a bit more, even though the French eat all the nutritionally forbidden foods, you know, they got high cholesterol, high fat in the diet, you know, um, wine, all kinds of things, but they have much lower rates of cardiac arrest and, Mm -hmm. and, and cardiovascular disease. Um, I think we need to re-socialise eating a bit more. Mm-hmm. We need to encourage people to eat with other people because they remember it and they won't get out of control portion sizes. I don't think restaurants are very good because they <clears throat> try to show that they're giving you value for money by giving you oversized proportions. Yeah. Mm. So if you're in the US, I mean, I just couldn't ever finish a US meal. It was just so enormous. Mm. So the answer is to eat bread, cheese and wine but have it with other people and have an hour-long lunch break or two-hour-long lunch break. Yeah, make sure you you eat in regular intervals. Mm-hmm. Don't snack in between. <clears throat> and I think there's a form of social control when you eat with other people. You're less likely to have a too large proportion, you know, or be, be greedy. And I think these things you eat, you just, you know, they're, 
there's probably only particular types of food you could eat at your desk, but they're no doubt very Moorish and high in the things that prompt us to eat more and they muck up the association, you know, signals you get from your body and you, you're probably just consuming too much food, apart from the fact that we don't exercise enough as well, you know. Mm. Yes, yeah, so a two-hour-long lunch break would also help with exercise, I think. You'd have enough time to go for a walk. Yeah, I think, you know, there was a big thing where they started talking about sitting, which is what most people do at work these days, was the new smoking, right? And they, yeah. they invented all these sit-stand desks and so forth. But I think you might need to be a bit more mobile on that. Mm. And I don't think employers would lose anything if they introduced actual exercise classes in the workplace. I know in one place we worked that the workers themselves organised for yoga one Friday lunchtime, yeah? Mm-hmm. It had no effect on lowering productivity, quite the reverse. Right? Oh, that's nice. So I think you could actually build it in. Um there are some proponents of time use that have used a different method to what I use, mm-hmm. but their estimate is 25% of the time we're at work, we're on task. The other time is daydreaming, digressing on something unimportant, um, postponing, procrastinating, you know. <laughs> um, because, of, you know, all I do these days is, either write or paint, mm-hmm. I realise I, I, if I write a good two hours a day while I'm productive, I have more or less the same output. <laughs> I get in an eight-hour day when wow. I fill around and make sure the desk is tidy and find something that's more important to do than actually the things I'm trying to write or I get stuck or something, you know. Has... Has um, working from home affected um, housework? If you're saying that people spend only 25% of their time at work mm. actually doing things and they're at home, then presumably some of that time spent not working would also be spent mm. doing things in the house. Yeah, um, if, if you're working from home, well... Difficulty is that most survey research stopped during COVID, right? Mm. Oh, yeah, it's hard. But I do have a colleague in Oxford, I'm working on a paper on this with him at the time, at the moment. He managed to field on via the internet some surveys. So he has the same instrument, he has some data from 2016, so pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. And he's got 2020, first big UK lockdown, and then successive, another four successive periods of relaxation and lockdown, and then end, so called lockdown and relax, end of lockdown, relaxation, you know, which we know not perfect. And he says that the actual length of time doing housework hasn't gone up or down. Okay, interesting. But uh, I've got another ex-student who's now a a professor (laughs) and she did a study in Melbourne uh, where they asked people um, uh, questions that were self-rating how they felt about 
their housework responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt that women found the task of having a home school and do the housework requirements requirements and do the work from home uh, very unsatisfying and mm. and 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 stressful. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so, um, and I heard lots of stories. It's just anecdotal from parents trying to preschool and homeschool and. You could tell the biggest battle was actually getting the children to ever cooperate. <laughs> you know, they all wanted to play games on the computer or do something else or just avoid it. You know? mm. uh, so I think that was very stressful. And I think a lot of the teaching profession has the same problem. My friends who were at university with me when they were supported by a scholarship which is aimed at recruiting more teachers, went into teaching and were disappointed how much of their time they had to spend trying to keep order in the classroom and keep people on task and how little and how difficult it was to engage them with, you know, abstract mathematics or something, something <laughs> like that. So mm. tough task, I think. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, having studied this, um, have you applied any of this to your own life? Yeah. Um, as I say, I live alone, so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, like I try to, um, you know, not um, have, you know, I, I, I try to minimise my laundry, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. I don't think I have to wash every item having worn on once, you know. Um, so I don't know. I'm relying on my nose, and you know, we're at the point where you know, I I, I suspected my get smelly or something. So you know, I just wash slightly less frequently. I think, mm-hmm. and um, you know. Uh, in terms of eating, I try to make sure that I'm eating three meals. Um, and uh, I have to watch my diet because my various medical conditions, I've got charts all over the place, which do with ridiculous things that most people don't have to worry about, like the level of potassium in the diet and mm-hmm. the amount of phosphate in the diet and so forth. So I've got charts about the food that's high and low in these items. So... Uh, you know, I have to employ that. I tend not to eat out much. Um, so I think I used to have a problem with overweight, but it was related to how intense the demands were on me. Right? Mm. So what, what would happen is if I had to work long hours, uh, I think I would basically comfort eat. Yeah. Portions were too big and I wasn't getting enough exercise and stuff. Yeah. And hmm. so, you know, I'm 20 kilos lighter than I was at my worst <laughs> when I was overworked, mm-hmm. basically. Um, so, you know, I, I do that. Um, uh, you know, the, 
Managing my own time is pretty easy because, you know, now I'm retired, so people would say I have endless amount of time. But I, I find the reverse is the case. You know, they, um, when they talk about what's too much job demand, you know, in, in an occupation, they also acknowledge that too little of demand is very unmotivating. Right. Mm. So um, they have a kind of threshold of arousal where the job demand is enough to sort of start engaging them. So what I find is um, that's an important element of my time. I've always got some manuscript I'm working on or some painting I've half finished and that's enough to keep me aroused and engaged with what I'm doing. So... I enjoy that a lot. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the the COVID thing, just to go back to that, is, you know, surprisingly not much change in housework time. There hasn't been enough study done about these children who are homeschooled. I think we're going to find out whether there was a price to pay for that. Mm. Uh, strangely, the remote working worked incredibly well. So working... Paperwork time did not go down over that period in the UK. Um, shopping in, uh, going to the shops just plummeted. Uh, and that meant people were obviously doing much more online. And there was, you know, the gig economy flourished and there was a lot of deliveries. Mm. Uh, and... Um, Yes, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how how much this remoteness changes things. So um, I think that the people who've got investments in the central business district are worried that customers never going to recover for the ancillary businesses, the coffee shops and blah blah, but the workers support. And, and probably landlords are going to have a bit of trouble with office space. But mind you, that space could be reconverted to residential and it would mm -hmm. be snapped up, you know, like people like living smack in the middle of the CBN. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's going to be a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that happened is um, the travel travel times dropped a lot, you know, because the whole point about social isolation is they only wanted you at home with your familial group, you know, <laughs> your household group, and, um, and people didn't go out much. So I I suspect there's going to be an increase on online everything, including, you know, like, like um, I don't know whether streaming services will do as well post-COVID as they did before, but I think there will be a lot more use of streaming services, for example. So there will be a lot more home entertainment that's replacing going out, I suspect. And, um, yeah, you know, I think television has changed a lot of sporting events. So, you know, I wonder whether they need to build such big stadiums because the, the real audiences and the real income is coming from television. Mm. So I don't know whether that's answering that question or not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I think that's all we've got time for, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. It was really great to talk to you, and I've certainly learned a lot today. Um, yeah. If people want to learn more about you, um, 
where can they find out more about you? Do you have a website or? Um... Um, um, well, there is a website at the University of New England and it'd probably be fairly out of date, but it would have a lot of my publications to do with, um, you know, household management, as you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you find all that literature there. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, on the popular front, um, you know, there, there's some sociologists who write with a popular audience in mind and one I'm thinking of is a woman called Ali Hochschild, uh, who's from California and she, she has a book called The Second Shift, which is quite interesting in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that would be a good place to start going. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm working on a handbook, mm-hmm. uh, which maybe you can find in library. And these days you can buy separate entries in the handbooks. <laughs> anyway, it's a monster thing that I'm co-editing with someone in London and... Uh, Normal book length is 70,000 words and they've asked for 280,000. It's going to be enormous. There'll be a chapter there on everything. Great. Um, Um, Yeah, it won't be out until about 2000 and what we, I think 2004 or something like that. Okay. Um, Yeah, so... We will, hopefully we will maybe get you back for that then or we'll uh, post about it on our social media. Um, but I will put the links for the things you mentioned, the book you mentioned and your website on our show notes. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming. It was really great to talk to you. Okay. You've been listening to On the House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and any other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, sharing, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people to find it so we can grow and continue to bring you quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.